Hey there, welcome to Journey On. I'm Dave Smelser. It is great to have you. So one theme that lurks behind a lot of the great spiritual teaching, but can nonetheless be hard to pin down, is that the world mostly makes sense, but it doesn't entirely make sense. And it's that not entirely point that gets the attention from these teachers, as if that turns out to be a central part of the story they tell. So today, we're going to look at the power of leaning into that occasional strangeness and how perhaps it can help us live the kind of life that, as we talked about in the last couple of episodes, feels like Peter walking on water with Jesus, such a central metaphor for these teachers of the life we're looking for. You're going to hear a few uncanny stories. We'll get some words of wisdom from Mother Teresa. We'll hear how this pushes deeper through conventional spiritual wisdom into something beyond that. We'll talk about how this great spirituality embraces both bone-deep vulnerability and a supernatural world. And then we'll hear about a three-part view of prayer that some people think gives us our best shot at experiencing the power of this uncanny world. And of course, we'll have a few thoughts from the Bible. As perhaps you've heard me mention, if this contemplative journeying spirituality grabs you, I think you'd really enjoy an online group I lead each week at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesdays. You can learn more about it by emailing mail at blueoceanfaith.org. Okay, kick us off Ryan Hood for The World is Weird and On Your Side. Maybe like me, you've experienced that if you get people talking unguardedly, maybe alcohol is involved, many of them have an unexplained story here or there. And a whole storytelling tradition plays on this sense of the uncanny, as if while we don't talk about it because it feels too vulnerable, it hits us at a deep place. So Steven Spielberg, for instance, worked this early in his career. A couple years back, Close Encounters of the Third Kind had a brief big screen re-release, and I took the family, which I will say sort of went okay. I hadn't remembered how much it's a movie about a dad who cracks up and leaves his family, which was less fun as a dad who'd brought my family. But it really does hit this, the universe is stranger than you think theme, in a way that's stuck with people for a generation since. And I wonder if that tells us something. So here's 30 seconds of a scene where Richard Dreyfus, who's seen alien spaceships, after which his life has gotten really weird, finds himself thrown into a truck and questioned by these strange authorities, including one played by the French film director Francois Truffaut, who I believe in real life barely spoke English. Avez-vous des maux de tête, des migraines Having headaches, migraines. Yeah. Irritation des yeux et du sinus. An irritation in your eyes and your sinuses. Yeah. Des démangeaisons, des allergies. You have hives. You have uh, allergies. Des brûlures sur le visage et sur le corps. You're burning uh, on your face and on your body. Yes. Who are you people? Look at this. Yeah, I got one just like in my living room. Who are you people? Je, je pense... Oui, je connais. Oui, je Monsieur Neri, please, one more question. N'avez-vous pas fait récemment une rencontre? Have you recently had a close encounter? Une rencontre plutôt inhabituelle? A close encounter with something very unusual. Who are you people? It hits at a deep place, doesn't it? At its worst, that sense of the uncanny can take us to conspiracy theories. But some smart teachers tell us that at its best, it draws us into a deep and powerful place. So maybe like you, I have heard some actual pretty uncanny stories, the sort of stories that as a late night host in my youth would say, would make you say, hmm. So for instance, a one-time roommate of mine had just gotten married and was traveling with his new wife around Europe where they now lived. 
They were driving up a lovely road high in the Alps when another car, they think driven by a drunk driver, appeared around a bend just in front of them, driving way too fast and in their lane. So this driver careened directly out at them, which drove them over the side of the Alp. Meanwhile, back in my friend's hometown in Southern California, his mother, a praying woman, was jolted out of sleep in the middle of the night with the seeming command from God to pray for my friend and his wife right then because their lives were in danger. They compared notes later on. She was praying for them at the minute of their accident. After they drove off the side, again, that I mentioned, it was an Alp, they nose-planted into someone's yard down below them, which was the only house in the entire area, after which was an uninterrupted tumble down the mountain. But these people had strung a metal clothesline in their yard, and my friend's car, nose down, spun back into the clothesline, which corralled their trunk, which prevented them from flipping off the Alp to their deaths. Something that makes you say, hmm. I mean, I have a few of these stories myself that I can't explain, some overtly spiritual, some just uncanny. So here's one of the uncanny ones. In high school, my family lived on the far side of San Diego County, which involves driving some mildly rural roads to get to our house. I was driving one of those roads pretty late at night with a friend. The road's deserted and is rural enough that it doesn't have street lights, so it's pretty dark. When suddenly my friend and I, I was driving, get blinded by a light so bright that I can't see a thing, so I slam the car to a stop. The light is coming, it seems, from all directions. So my windshield is blinded, but so are all the passenger and driver's side windows and the rear window. My friend and I, in the car, try to process what this possibly could be. I mean, it seemed unlikely, but sometimes there are helicopters in the area hunting for escaped prisoners. So maybe it was like a spotlight from one of those helicopters. But even if that was the case, could their searchlight be that powerful? And could it be coming from all directions? So we gingerly get out of the car and look up. We still can't see a thing because it's so bright. And then the light snaps off and the sky is completely dark again and there's no signs of whatever it was. To this day, I have no interpretation of that episode. But I do know what my friend and I at the time considered the explanation that best matched the facts. Aliens. Perhaps it was our own close encounter. Of course, I have no idea. One coda to this uncanny story a couple decades later. I'm now married and I'm visiting home. And someone in front of my wife, Grace, says, Hey, you remember that night when you and your friend had that thing that might have been an alien encounter? Grace perked up because I'd never mentioned this to her. And then it came back to me quite vividly. In the intervening time, I'd totally forgotten the story. Grace said, you forgot that story? So did, did they like wipe your mind? So like I say, whatever you think of the story, maybe you'll agree that it's odd. So this podcast is hosted on a site that I helped named after a character from Shakespeare. The character is Hamlet's good friend Horatio. When Horatio is with Hamlet while he's haunted by the ghost of his father and understandably freaks out a little bit, Hamlet says to him, actually, I'm going to let David Tennant from Doctor Who and this Amazon Prime series, Good Omens, tell you in his turn as Hamlet what Hamlet said to Horatio. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. In modern words, there's more going on out there than you can imagine. And that seemed like a fun thing to build a website around those years ago. So this podcast is looking at this contemplative type of spirituality that we are calling journeying which perhaps is the Horatio brand of spirituality that explores teachings from the great spiritual teachers from all over the world. We've looked at the St. Francis's and Brother Lawrence's and Dalai Lama's and so on that embrace conservative and progressive spirituality both while saying that for the tremendous truths in those spaces, 
there's something bigger going on as well. It's an important part of the story. And that's the part we're talking about today. The Bible, of course, is full of uncanny stories. Some of the earlier ones to some modern eyes might seem a bit more like legends, and fair enough, where, for instance, a donkey suddenly starts talking to chew out its human owner, or a flaming chariot comes out of the sky to take the prophet Elijah to what we presume is heaven. But whether you look on those stories as legends or take them at face value, either way, they suggest that the authors understood themselves to be living in a world that had some strangeness in it in which whatever we make of these stories, there's more in heaven and earth than we've dreamt of in our philosophy. In the New Testament, you've got this guy, Philip, having just been directly spoken to by God to go talk to this foreigner and see him have the biggest spiritual encounter of his life, suddenly being, I can't come up with a better word than something modern and sci-fi like teleported to a whole different place where he suddenly appears. In the last couple of podcasts, we've talked about how ancient spirituality looks at a particular uncanny story. Jesus' friend Peter walking on water as a central picture of the spirituality that our hearts are craving, as if taking this journey with God requires a kind of walking on water, a kind of trusting vulnerability, where we learn to look at Jesus rather than down at the water we are walking on. While it embraces a vulnerability that never goes anywhere, you are walking on water after all. It also offers a kind of heightened life that comes from living in an uncanny world and not leaving it too quickly, just hanging out there a bit. Again, if you have eyes to see it, this is a central understanding throughout the Bible. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel, where we get this incredible line from, we're told, all three of them, where they say to evil King Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods. Well, that's walking on water, right? Yes, it's this famously inspiring picture of faith under duress, but walking on water involves a bone-deep trust in God as you go, right? Peter would not have gotten out of the boat if he hadn't seen Jesus and if Jesus hadn't invited him in. But now Peter is in the middle of a story that's fueled exclusively by trust in the one he's looking at. Though, of course, there is serious allowance for quitting trusting every now and again. When Peter looks down and then goes under the waves, he doesn't drown. Jesus does fish him out. Now, as we look at spiritual implications of living in this occasionally uncanny world, we hit a kind of roadblock because the entry-level advice only has one kind of crudely stated point, which is that pressing into rather than away from this uncanny stuff is the way to go, as if we'll thrive by, say, surfing this rather than resisting it. If, for instance, paranoia and conspiracy theories are bad outcomes from touching on this uncanniness, maybe that's because people who suffer from these things haven't taken this advice. Rather than with God surfing this, perhaps conspiracy theorists have needed non-uncanny, causal explanations. So to a conspiracy theorist, my odd experience with my high school friend on that dark road would have to be because of a vast governmental plot, which of course, given that I have no real explanation for it, it might actually have been. But the great spiritual teachers would be more comfortable in leaning into rather than explaining the mystery. G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy says, that the poet, the one who can spiritually surf the uncanny, the poet, asked to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who asked to get the heavens into his head, and it is the head that splits. Resisting the uncanny, in this sense, comes from needing to feel a sense of control over something uncontrollable. So run with me into some of their initial advice, which can seem unduly basic on the front end, but perhaps deepens as you lean into it. So if these uncanny moments are, say, a clue to something, 
How can we access what that something might be? Let me start with a crudely stated suggestion. Pray a lot. Yes, pray a lot. That's the depth we're going to here. So it's not a deep thought, but that's at the heart of my first uncanny story, right? My friend's mother did, in fact, pray a lot. And that's at the heart of her role in what could and should have been a fatal story for my friend and his wife. Mother Teresa is inspiring and sort of complex along these lines. I remember seeing a documentary about her some years back, which charmingly portrayed her as a very strong-willed person. So she was looking to open up one of her homes for the sick and dying in a town if, if memory serves, Mexico. And the young mayor of the town meets with Mother Teresa on camera and says that, of course, they'd love to give her space to do that. And what they have to offer is on the outskirts of town. But she wants a space downtown, which the young mayor apologetically says is not going to be possible. So she says something like, we'll meet later today, and leaves. And then she convenes her nuns that are in town and says, pray right now. So on camera, we see them drop to their knees and pray about this for, I think we're told, a couple of hours. After this, she returns to talk to the mayor, who immediately says, okay, we can make the downtown location work. After her death, her dark nights of the soul became more known, which might make us wonder about her innocent, unguarded, trusting faith here. But here's how she talks about it in her book, No Greater Love. This is Mother Teresa. I don't think, she says, there is anyone who needs God's help and grace as much as I do. Sometimes I feel so helpless and weak. There's that vulnerability stuff again. I think that's why God uses me. Because I cannot depend on my own strength. I rely on him 24 hours a day. My secret is very simple. I pray. Love to pray. Feel the need to pray often during the day. Prayer, she continues, enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. For Mother Teresa, prayer could be directly asking God for things, as we see in the prayer for the downtown location. But it was also about contemplative, meditative prayer, which she required of all her nuns for one hour each day before they'd start their work. To her, both opened up this unseen world. A couple of podcasts back, I mentioned the thinker Joseph Campbell, himself a mystic in the sense we talk about here, who proposed that the journey we talk about here involves leaning in to what he calls the special world. We have to leave what he calls the ordinary world of stresses and rivalries and lots of other aspects of our day-to-day life and take forays into this special world, which is uncharted and vulnerable, but it's thick, as it were, with God and meaning and the purpose of your life. It's walking on water. And one aspect of that journey he talks about is our need to have what he called a supernatural guide for those forays to, as it were, have Jesus guiding us onto the water. And praying a lot, in this sense, seems like a way into that. Here's a second of our crudely stated points. Assume the miraculous. Assume the miraculous. At least as a possibility. So whatever dark nights Mother Teresa experienced, she did assume a God who might respond, at the very least, to earnest prayer and open up good things in this unseen world that will help her. That's why she got her nuns praying for the site she wanted. Of course, the mayor might have changed her mind, the mayor was a woman, changed her mind for reasons that were entirely explainable apart from these prayers. What do I know? The mayor was on camera after all, and I would expect she wanted to look like an ally to someone as prominent and respected as Mother Teresa. But it's always true that we can never pin down cause and effect in the world of the uncanny, as I couldn't in my encounter on that dark road. By definition, we've walked into a world that's bigger than us. But Mother Teresa nonetheless assumed that their prayers did access something real. Assuming the miraculous, that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's point to the king. 
Whether or not they got delivered from the fiery furnace, they could be delivered from the fiery furnace. And so they were game to enter into Hamlet's expansive world or to walk on water. Thirdly, meditate. All right, not a surprising point for a podcast like this one, which focuses so much on contemplative spirituality. We talk about meditation in one form or another most times. But let's think about how meditate fits into this uncanny world. So we might wonder if this assume the miraculous stuff is at cross purposes with contemplative spirituality, which is all about getting still and mindful and noticing your feelings and external circumstances and being curious and non-reactive and not to be, to use a word we brought up here, frothy, where you're all stirred up. So the opposite of a contemplative space might be the evil prophets of Baal and the Elijah and Mount Carmel story in the Bible. The evil prophets of Baal who whipped themselves into a frenzy and cut themselves as they pleaded with their God for a miracle. Let's just say they were frothy at a high level. But that's also its own way of trying to feel in control even in a spiritual setting. I've sometimes been in such settings, so I'm sympathetic. So calibrating ourselves somewhere on the continuum between the prophets of Baal, who certainly did believe in the uncanny but were so desperate and disconnected that their way in was strangely godless, And at the other pole, a kind of unbelief that feels at a deep level that we're on our own. If those are the two poles, that seems to be the key of great spirituality, finding the right calibration between them. And Psalm 27 hits the power of this point of meditation as having a role in this directly. One thing have I asked from the Lord, says the psalmist, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. So somehow there's a sort of stillness, a meditation in the presence of God, which quiets our hearts for power to happen. Psalm 27 is all about wanting power. As we'll likely talk about on another podcast sometime soon, the spiritual masters divide prayer into three categories. Did you know that? There's three ways of prayer that historically get brought up as being in some sort of balance. Here's the three. The contemplative, meditation, centering prayer, etc., the relational, chatting with God, hearing God talk back, being in a dialogue, and asking, wanting stuff and going to God to get it. Contemplative, relational, asking. Their idea is that maintaining a diet of all three gets us the spiritual life that will serve and sustain us for a lifetime. But camping out in one exclusively tends to go bad. So one way of thinking about this is that the prophets of Baal only had, to use a golf metaphor, one club in their bag, asking. They didn't have the kind of chatty conversational prayer experience that James chapter 1 pitches or that Brother Lawrence talks about, as we recently thought about together. But they also didn't, as it were, meditate in God's temple. And the price they paid was that their exclusive emphasis on their God's power turned bad and brought them no peace. Mother Teresa can have such confidence in having her Sisters of Charity ask God for the particular property she thought was best because she and the sisters both were also daily practiced being still before God. Sometime soon, we're going to have 10 five-minute videos on journeying spirituality available. And in the first of them, I'll spend a little of that very brief time considering an endorsement from this famous former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who said that contemplative spirituality, the meditation part of that, the, the one of the three parts, it wasn't just one thing, though, that Christians do. It was the key, he argues, to everything good in the world, art, spirituality, ethics, and more. So maybe he's overstating the one side there, but his punchy endorsement at least gets my attention. It's sort of jolting. And I wonder if his point 
is that this sort of regular meditation brings the kind of stillness which empowers God to work in our subconscious so that when we do go to God in the asking kind of prayer, we do it not from prophets of Baal desperation, but from a kind of Peter walking on water place of trust, which turns out to be a whole different Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of thing. Here's another one from my bag full of uncanny stories. When Grace and I were dating, we lived in San Francisco. And one night after we'd seen a movie or knowing me, maybe it was a play, we drove to the top of one of San Francisco's several famous hills to continue talking at a view spot. And I won't kid you, there might have been a tiny bit of smooching. And then I was going to drive her home. Now, to this day, we can talk for a long time. So suddenly we realized it was really late, like 1 a.m., so we needed to get back. But my car chose that moment not to start. Now, that's not the biggest thing in the world, but it actually seemed like a not inconsequential problem at the time. There were no cell phones then, so we had no way of calling anyone. And it was 1 a.m., so there'd be no place open even if we did. Taking a very long walk down the hill and maybe to one of our apartments was not risk-free because of the hour, the serious distance, and maybe most relevantly, the rough neighborhoods we would need to travel through at 1 a.m. So we were a little flummoxed. We took a moment to pray. And if memory serves, a minute into our prayers, a light snaps on behind us from another car. Not as if it was driving up, but as if it was parked right behind us all along. And there had been no car parked behind us, I'm pretty sure of that. And it turned on its headlights. And then from the car emerges a woman, I can still picture her, short, brown hair, 30s, I believe, all dressed in white, who walked over to us and asked if we needed help. Were we having car trouble? If it was a battery problem, she had jumper cables. We said, that'd be great. And she pulled her car onto the road next to us. We popped our hoods. She jumped the battery. That did the trick. After disconnecting the cable, she came over to my driver's side window for a few final words and for us to thank her. And as she was doing that, I turned my head towards Grace to make some comment. And when I turned back, there was no woman or car. We had not heard it drive away. And we were at the apex of the hill. So we could see a long way in front of us. And there was no car on the road in front of us. Now, sort of like my driving story in high school with my friend, Grace and I have no real way to explain this one way or another. I mean, maybe the woman, in a matter of moments, returned to her car, drove away, and pulled off into some hidden alleyway in the time I turned my head to Grace and back. But for us, our best hypothesis was along the lines of she was an angel. You know, all dressed in white, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, we're not deep. But who knows? At the very least, it seemed uncanny. Look, there's a lot of mystery in the world. And that thought is baked into a lot of the world's great spirituality, as if pressing into that in ways that are contemplative, relational, and asking will offer us a whole lot. That said, the spirituality taught by the great teachers is irreducibly vulnerable, as if that's an important thing to think about. Can anything that relentlessly vulnerable last an entire lifetime? We're certainly going to talk about that. Before today, The good news is that along the way, we're given actual tools to enter into a reality that's bigger than we are, and it turns out is on our side. Let's give those tools a shot this week. That's it for this week's Journey On. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, if you wouldn't mind giving it a positive review on iTunes, boy, that would be great and would help others hear about it. I will look forward to being back with you next week.